0: Good evening everyone, good evening my name is Karen O'Brien I'm head of the humanities division here at Oxford and I'd like to welcome you very warmly to this very special event on the future of heritage. As you may be aware, this is the sixth and final event in a series of lectures jointly between Oxford University and the National Trust. These lectures and events have brought together around 300 colleagues from Oxford and the National Trust and elsewhere on everything from historic collections to land management to branding and fundraising. And it's been a truly fascinating series. Uh, All of the previous events are available on the Oxford University podcast website. So if you're interested to hear those ever again, please do so. This series has grown out of the blossoming relationship between the Humanities Division and the National Trust ...based on knowledge sharing. This event will open up discussion to a still wider audience... ...but beyond our two partnerships... ...and we think that it's the beginning of a great many more things to come. And here at Oxford we're extremely excited and enthusiastic about this partnership. Tonight we're welcoming a very wide audience from a number of universities... ...from Bath University to Lancaster University to the University of Wisconsin... (coughs) Uh, I'm welcoming representatives from a num- number of heritage and other organisations, including the Heritage Lottery Fund, English Heritage, the Country House Foundation, the Victorian Albert Museum, and the Science Museum. But I particularly want to welcome representatives from Myanmar, from the Yangon Heritage Trust in Myanmar. We're very delighted to have an international pres- presence in our heritage discussions here tonight. After the event is over, there'll be a celebratory drinks reception. Apparently it's the room exactly across the way from here. Uh, We've gone right the way to the back of St John's College and there won't be much further to go for the drinks. I hope that's (laughs) some consolation for the epic journey from the St John's College Lodge to this wonderful lecture theatre that the College has so kindly let us use this evening. You can also, during the course of this event, if you are so minded and so competent, tweet uh, at hashtag So please do that, and, but as long as they are positive remarks uh, and not, oh my goodness, it's time for a drink. Well, I'd like to briefly introduce our panellists uh, and speaker before I hand over... Uh, although many of them need no introduction at all. We're going to start with a short uh, talk from Dame Helen Ghosh, who is here at the end of the panel, and who is, of course, Director General of the National Trust. And we're really delighted to welcome you again, Helen, tonight. Next to Helen, we have Professor Peter Mandler, who is Professor of Modern Cultural History at the University of Cambridge. Next to Peter, we have Dr. Dan Hicks, who is uh, an associate professor at the Institute of Archaeology here at the University of Oxford and also, and very importantly, a curator at the Pitt Rivers Museum. Next to Dan, we have Sandy Nairn, uh, who is a trustee of the National Trust and, of course, a former director of the National Portrait Gallery. Then we have Carol Souter, who is our new Master of St Cross College here at the University of Oxford, but is, of course, a a former director of the Heritage Lottery Fund and of the National Heritage Memorial Fund. Uh, And at the end, in convening the panel debate that we'll have this evening, we have John Orner Ornstein, who tells me that as of next week, so not currently, but in a week's time, he will take on the role of director of curation and experience at the National Trust. And we're very grateful to John for joining us and for convening the panel debate. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Dame Helen to begin the proceedings, uh, and then John will convene the panel debate. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy the evening.
1: I think I'm what they call the warm-up act. Uh, And when I asked what I was supposed to talk about, uh, I got a slightly mixed message, and uh, therefore I hope... Uh, I intend that what I had to say, have to say will kind of mix these two messages together. Uh, there was one element of kind of just summarise everything all these lectures have said for the last 10 weeks, um, but also lay some trails for the kinds of issues uh, that we might want to debate uh, through this discussion. Um, so I hope I'll manage to keep the right kind of balance between the two. Um, sorry. I thought I would start with this slide, because I think it sums up for me uh, what is heritage, uh, the question I suspect that will underlie quite a lot of the discussion this evening. Uh, you may well recognise that this is the burnt-out shell of Clandon, uh, our house uh, just outside Guildford in Surrey uh, that was subject to a tragic fire over, just over two years ago, um, and which Uh, Following that, uh, the destruction of much of the contents, much of the interior of the house, but not the shell of the house, um, provoked a fascinating debate about what the National Trust should do next. Uh, And as I say, at the heart of that, uh, there were issues about, but what is heritage? Uh, There were people who said that rather like Up Park in the uh, 1980s and 90s, we should completely restore the house uh, as it was the day before the fire. Uh, there was another lobby, actually led by the uh, member of the historic family, Lord Onsley, saying we should leave it completely as a ruin. Uh, the fire in the place that had destroyed so much of it was in fact parts of its history. It was heritage, and we should leave it exactly as it was. What we decided to do, uh, and I think... Generally, with the support of both specialist groups, the local community uh, and the broader public, was to say we can do two things at somewhere like Clandon. We can pay our tribute to the legacy of the past, uh, to the wonderful and innovative approach that Giacomo Leone had taken in the 1720s by restoring... Uh, Parts of the house that were less damaged where we had more uh, that we could salvage uh, and that was significant uh, In heritage and architectural terms, but we could create heritage for the future Uh, And we're in the middle of an architectural competition Uh, We'll be choosing a designer in the autumn this year to create new spaces uh, on the uh, in the second and third floors uh, of the house which we can use for a variety of things, for uh, exhibitions, for uh, programming, for uh, drama, for community activity. So we have laid out, I suppose, uh, that as a principle of how the National Trust might operate in the 21st century. To go back briefly to our history and to, in a sense, summarise, I suspect, what uh, at least two or three of the lectures in this series have talked about... Um, One of the uh, great privileges uh, of working for the Trust, and I think one of the keys uh, to its success over the last 120 years, um, is that it has always been an adaptive and flexible organisation. It was set up by a group of, um, uh, I'd say, radicals in the late 19th century to, quote, promote the preservation of places of historic interest or natural beauty for the benefit of the nation. Uh, And over its 120-year history, it's interpreted that mission in a variety of different ways. Um, Its founders were all about green spaces. Octavia Hill, great social reformer, uh, was passionate about green space, green open-air sitting rooms for the poor of the increasingly uh, urbanised industrial classes. Um, We're probably most famous, and in a sense it was serendipitous, it was chance, uh, for our ownership of the stately home. Uh, which uh, was our response in the middle of the 20th century to the um, destruction of particularly the English country houses as a result of high estate duties, agricultural depression, uh, the loss of many elder sons. Um, And that is why uh, we now own something like 350 stately homes of various kinds. forward to the 1960s, and we turned our attention to protecting coast from development uh, and to ensure access, Enterprise Neptune uh, being one of our most successful fundraising campaigns ever. Um, And I suppose into the 1990s, into the 2000s, under the leadership of my predecessor, Fiona Reynolds, uh, we turned our thoughts to what that thing for the people meant and we started to acquire different kinds of places, uh, ordinary people's houses, if you can say that the Beatles were ordinary uh, in any way, but ordinary houses, uh, suburban villas, uh, workhouses, um, and were, I think, feeling our way towards, and again, I'm sure this will be a subject for our discussion what is heritage in the 21st century? And how do we welcome the nation, since after all that is our mission, to visit them? Um, We've been extraordinarily successful thanks to the support of hundreds of thousands, millions of people, uh, generous donors, uh, generous historic families, Um, and we now own uh, something like a quarter of a million hectares of land, countryside, a lot of it in the uplands but across the country, those 350 houses, 700 uh, or more miles of coast. This year we will be approaching 5 million members Uh, which is an extraordinary um, uh, uh, achievement, but in a way, and Hilary McGrady talked about this in her talk, in terms of the challenge facing us operationally, one of our biggest challenges. uh, The fact that people love visiting our countryside, 200 million visits a year to our countryside, and they love visiting our houses and gardens, 24 million visits last year. And this puts a strain uh, both physically Um, and in terms of how we can ensure everybody enjoys their visits uh, on us, uh, to which we have to respond. We also have other challenges. Uh, I've summarised some of them here. Um, Conservation. Uh, The cost of looking after this wonderful legacy of assets... Um, We're able, we're happy to say, again luckily because of the support we get to spend more than ever before on conservation. Uh, You can see a scaffold up on the vine roof down in Hampshire, uh, which gives our visitors the chance to look at uh, the work we're doing to replace the roof, but that costs money. And even with our success, uh, we don't have enough money uh, to ensure that we uh, don't have a conservation backlog, so that is a constant challenge. Uh, we need to understand research strategy, top right hand corner, <coughs> what it is we're looking after, um, and we need to be systematic in understanding, and this is precisely uh, where we get into uh, the value of partnerships, academic partnerships such as that with this with Oxford and with a variety of other uh, universities, including represented here today. Um, we need to keep up with technology, we need to invest. Uh, not only in our own systems, but also in keeping up with the expectations of our visitors uh, in terms of what, how they expect to get information from us, how they might enjoy our places when they get there, um, and keeping up, particularly, I hasten to add, in an organisation where many of the places people visit are a long way away from good broadband. Um, it is a real challenge to keep up technologically and uh, be able to use our technology and link uh, with social media and personal technology in a way we need to do. And at the bottom right hand uh, corner, uh, indeed I was very close by this morning, Huenden, uh, the Israeli study at Hewenden. Um I put that in because of the constant challenge uh, in, and back to this point about the nation, how we ensure if we need to ensure, and I suspect that will be uh, a particular uh, point for debate later on, how do we ensure that we can communicate, explain, um, inspire uh, all our visitors, whatever their needs may be, whatever their level of understanding of what we do or of the history of who on earth was Benjamin Disraeli through to uh, the person who's written their PhD on the subject of Benjamin Disraeli. That real challenge of how you reach out genuinely to the whole nation. Um, I also put a couple of uh, slides in here uh, back to this point about what is heritage and what do we mean by it. Some of you will recognise on the left-hand side Borrodale in the Lake District Um, and some of you may have noticed towards the end of last year uh, we um, got ourselves in the papers uh, around uh, an issue where we'd bought some land, some uh, land uh, alongside other land we owned uh, in, uh, in Borrodale. Um, and there was uh, a furore about the fact that we'd bought land, but we hadn't bought the farmhouse, which was also on offer, at the same time. What people saw that as was a betrayal by the National Trust uh, of our role as they saw it, to support the way of life of the Cumbrian upland farmer Um, and we explained, I hope um, since the furore then died down, um, we explained to people's satisfaction uh, that we absolutely believed uh, in the importance of culture and community uh, in achieving our charitable purpose promoting the preservation in this case of natural beauty as well as places of historic interest but that our role was about enabling people as much to change and adapt um, in order to protect those places so is heritage about protecting ways of life a really interesting issue and on the right hand side um, that's the interior of uh, the caravan club Uh, Which was a gay club um, in London uh, in the 1930s. Uh, We reconstructed it for the purpose of a festival that we've um, a a programme of events across various National Trust properties, including in Soho, um, where we have um, uh, reconstructed the interior of one of these clubs uh, to mark and uh, enable people to engage with the story. Uh, of the LGBTQ community as it was uh, before the decriminalization um, of homosexuality uh, 50 years ago. So, is that heritage? I have to say my postbag was pretty well split 50-50 on that subject. Playing our part, we've all talked in our lectures, uh, National Trust representatives, about playing our part. Uh, I asked the question when I arrived at the Trust five years ago, so if we've got this fabulous adaptive history, Uh, in the trust and we always respond to the needs of the moment what are the needs of the 21st century to which the national trust should be responding Uh, we put conservation because promoting the preservation is our number one core purpose continuing focus on conservation of our houses collections and countryside as number one Uh, We also focused on this issue of how you, as we put it, move, teach and inspire people uh, to believe that heritage is important, is relevant to them uh, and that they get something, whether it's emotionally or spiritually or intellectually, out of their contact with heritage, however you want to describe it. We put as a number one priority, because we believe this is what our founders would say if they came back and said, how are you doing, Uh, National Trust, in uh, 2015, as it was. Uh, We gave particular priority uh, to the role that we could play um, as such a large landowner um, in the restoration uh, of nature and biodiversity. Uh, And Peter Nixon, uh, one of my uh, directors, gave a very eloquent talk about that as part of this series. Playing our part was emphasising that the very choice of title, uh, which I chose, um, was to emphasise the point that neither we nor any heritage organisation uh, can achieve uh, what they're trying to achieve other than in partnership. Uh, Our partnerships may be uh, with the farmer, you can see uh, in the field at the top left hand. uh, Most of our land is farmed by tenants. Uh, We have 1,500 farm tenants, and if we're going to achieve our very um, uh, uh, ambitious uh, 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 vision uh, for the restoration of countryside, of uh, restoration of habitat uh, on a local and on a landscape scale, we have to work in partnership. Uh, Featured articles, this is, I think, from Trusted Source. Uh, which is one of the particular tools that's come out of our partnership with Oxford University. We have to work in partnership with academia, uh, with uh, research institutions, whether they're at the academic blue skies end or at the practical hands-on end. And crucially, bottom left-hand side, this is the Moseley Road baths in Birmingham, uh, where we're working with the local community, uh, not to take it over, not to acquire, but to see how we can help the local communities uh, to uh, save and preserve what they want what they believe is their important local heritage and I suppose last of all just to remind us of this um, this is Harry Dempster who is eight years old uh, who is sitting in Buckland Abbey uh, gazing at the picture which uh, was found to be uh, a Rembrandt Um, and I suppose this is only to remind us all uh, that what is heritage is in a sense not for us in this room to decide Uh, but for our children to decide. Um, And what I believe Heritage is, um, is very much in their hands uh, to tell us about what they would like, if I think of my own organisation, the National Trust to be preserving and um, uh, uh, communicating about and inspiring the world about in the 21st century. Thank you very much.
2: Moving the microphone. Can people hear me? No. Okay. So we will move. We'll move these. Can you hear me now? Okay. Good. Um, so, so welcome again, um, and thank you for that introduction, Helen. Um, we are here to talk and think about heritage and the future of heritage. Um, we're here to debate, and I hope it is a good, active debate. And we're here to have some fun. So, if you don't have some fun. Um, then it's our fault, I think, probably. Um, we do... Um, Sandy Nen has just told me that we have um, drums in the background, <laughs> kettle drums. So if it gets very quiet, then the drums will come out. Um, I, thought, I thought we might start with um, the National Trust and its, its um, byline, its vision to be forever for everyone, which, which of course, is completely absurd, isn't it? Um, nothing is forever and nothing that we preserve is forever, and and nothing is for everyone. And if we try to make something for everyone, we we probably fall down. Um, But that tension is really interesting, and it's one that's very, very active for the National Trust and part of everyday conversation. So um, my first question, I'm going to tell a little story and then open up to the panel to talk about that tension, about preservation, but but for whom and for when, and and the degree of access that, that, that we think should be allowed now. I used to work at the British Museum and I had a call uh, one morning, mid morning. I was in a meeting so I didn't answer. My phone went again and again, so in the end I picked up. Um, and I was told to come to one gallery in the museum. Um, and there on the fl- the gallery had been closed, and there on the floor were a thousand little tiny pieces of flint that just an hour ago had been a wonderful 300,000 year old Paleolithic hand axe. Um, and it was part of a handling programme. We were deliberately giving visitors the opportunity to handle objects in the galleries, and as a result, this wonderful, beautiful, majestic object had been completely and utterly destroyed. Um, What do you think about that as a panel? (laughs) (laughs) How, How hard should we be using the heritage that we're looking after? Sandy, you look as though you have something to say.
3: Well, if one, was a, if one was a pragmatist, one would say, how many hand axes have you got? <laughs> but handling, handling is fantastic. I always remember there was a wonderful moment some years ago when we were working on, uh, uh, as director of the Portrait Gallery with other directors, we were trying to persuade the Department of Education um, to put in more money into schools work, into education work, and we managed to get some of the seniors from the Department of Education into a uh, seminar at the Natural History Museum, and then somebody turned, they said, do the meteorite trick. I said. What is the meteorite trick? And then somebody scuttled off, and they came back with this object, which was a meteorite. And they just handed it round to the guys and girls from the Department of Education. It really changed things. Because that sense, okay, touch is is difficult. Touch is one of the hardest things about what we hold on our fingertips. I spent too long, uh, when I worked at the Tate, trying to describe why it was so So much not a good idea for people to handle a Barbara Hepworth sculpture because although it was tempting, that marble was really not going to be feeling so good after the acid off your fingers had had been transferred. However, with that broken axe and everything else, has to be the questions of use. Um, To my mind, if we don't use what we've got, if we don't put it in use, then we won't have it as it was. Now, we're going to change everything as we change uses across time, um, I had the absolute joy of spending Saturday uh, using a very particular bit of the National Trust which was the National Trust being the owner of the River Way Navigation um, and I travelled 18 miles between Weybridge and Guildford uh, through 16 locks um, and you see a fantastic working bit of the world I mean I, mean, I just don't want to call it heritage it's nothing to, you can call it heritage if you like it's just a bit of working landscape Okay, it doesn't serve the same purpose for which it was built commercially, but it's still absolutely working and needs to be working. Um, And, of course, it's got changing technologies in the locks from how it was first built. So I suppose what I'm after is adaptive usage. So the thing that's most in my mind is what are the adaptive uses, whether that's setting, environment, lighting, uh, including, I would argue if we come back to it, the adaptive uses of interpretation.
4: I think for me that the, the question brings together all the aspects of uh, the work that the National Trust has been doing with the university. Because, it, in many ways, the, uh, the most obvious answer to the question is, as Sandy said, how many others have you got? Um, what assessment have you made of the importance of that particular thing? Um, that will have led you to decide whether it was part of your handling collection or whether it was within a glass mm-hmm. case. Uh, but the, the thing that comes to mind most strongly for me was when I was working at English Heritage, um, going to Richborough. Uh, Roman site boxes and boxes of real Roman tile real Roman tile genuinely very old Roman tile but there was a lot of it um, which is why it was in a box for um, primary school children to handle and the look of absolute wonder absolute wonder on a five year old's face when they hold a bit of tile and understand that really it is that old and people had that on their roof at that time is something so magical that you know, having made all of your risk assessments I think it's absolutely essential that you use those things. Um, and then you have your mitigation strategies. So uh, if you've got a, pro- a program like Fix the Fells, you encourage people to walk the fells, you help them find the routes that are least destructive and invasive, and then when they walk the, the places they want to walk, you make sure you've got a program in place to help Fix the paths and help guide them forward, but without use, um, so much of what we talk about becomes distance from people's reality and doesn't tell its story properly. And how can you engage with something if you can't even imagine being able to use
5: it? Um,
6: I, th- I think it's important to remember that uh, that the, this the idea that the. The properties of the National Trust are for uh, use um, by a substantial chunk of the population is a relatively recent Mm -hmm. development and it's a tribute as Helen has said to um, Helen's predecessor Fiona Reynolds and to Helen herself that they have taken this challenge much more seriously than any of their many predecessors over the previous century. I mean, in the early part of the 20th century, the National Trust was trying to keep its membership down. Um, And in the 1930s, the government had to tell it to um, back up and start recruiting some members. Otherwise, there would be no um, uh, reason for for government to legislate uh, to its benefit. It started to grow in the post-war period. But even then, there was a feeling on the part of the um, the pretty tight circles that controlled the Trust that that, that, uh, tourists were... Uh, you know a, a, a sort of a slightly corrupt flow to be managed and channeled rather than to be embraced um, and um, so I think this is, this is a, a a contemporary revelation that we should be proud of, but it 's probably a little bit fragile and one thing to to remember also and here i um, I say something mildly critical about the trust, but it 's something a criticism that could be aimed against my own university, Cambridge, as well as this one as well um, uh, if you look at the membership of the National Trust, um, it's a sociological um, uh, illustration of, uh, of, of stratification in, um, in its uh, classical form. Uh, if you go through the income deciles from the bottom 10% to the top 10%, um, the, as you rise up the deciles, your chance of being a member of the National Trust mm-hmm. gets a bit larger and larger. Mm-hmm. And it's when you get to the top two deciles that it takes off. And I forget what the figure is, but something like 25 to 30% of the top two deciles are members of the National Trust and under 10%. Uh, of, the, of the bottom decile. The, the, the point being that the, the users um, to whom the, whom the National Trust has been embracing have been, in some ways, the easiest users um, to access, the ones who are likely to already share the National Trust's present idea of what it is for and what should be preserved and how it should be handled. Um, and when, when Helen raises the important point, I think, about needing to think about what posterity will want to be, Preserved and for what purpose? Um, I do think we have to ask: How will which posterity? Yeah. How will we know um, if, in fact, we are only just reproducing ourselves, generation after generation, changing very mildly as our uh, as our own um, uh, highly privileged group changes its priorities? Um, but if the national trust ever did become, you know, genuinely representative of the population, what kind of use would it want to embrace? Yeah.
2: How, do we, how do we even find that out? Helen, um, um, over to you.
6: Yeah, that's yeah. a good question.
1: Only to say we worry about this as much as, I'm sure, Cambridge and indeed Oxford University do. Um, And um, this question about... uh, Now, uh, are we going to approach this issue, which is a big challenge in terms of the representativeness, both of our members and our visitors, uh, by making people interested in what we are interested in, or are we going to meet them at the place where we acquire whether ourselves or in partnership, or we, we provide what they already find interesting. I think that is a real dilemma. Um, when we have done, because it is an issue that has concerned us for a number of years, uh, and our current group of trustees in particular, um, uh, when we've done the, the analysis, uh, it isn't the case. The, the, the main reason people do not visit national trust places, I have to say, in the countryside, it is still the case that we are more Socioeconomically and even ethnically representative. But if you think about visitors to our houses and gardens, traditional National Trust, um, it's because they think it's going to be boring. So it's the fundamental boringness of it, not particularly the subject matter. Uh, Again, we did a couple of focus groups recently—one in uh, Greater Manchester and one down in Bristol—and said in Greater Manchester, well, uh, this particularly uh, Black and minority ethnic groups, would you be, you know, would you visit National Trust places more if we put on uh, more programmes about, say, the history of slavery, uh, in particularly from the trading ports in the northwest, or uh, international uh, issues in terms of uh, the development of, say, uh, the empire and the Raj and so on. Um, and they said, uh, no, sorry, why would we be interested? Uh, actually, we're really interested in the industrial history of the northwest of England. Interestingly, in Bristol, and it may not have been a, a representative group again, the, the focus group we had there said, actually, yes, we would be interested uh, in more about uh, the history of slavery and the slave trade and its impact on Bristol. Um, so you can't predict what it is that people think is their heritage, which I think is the first issue. Um, and also we believe very profoundly that to kind of artificially shoehorn into the story of a house or a place, oh, and, uh, and we now we will talk about, is, is potentially a patronising thing to do. So authenticity and assumptions are big problems for us. But we need to look more diverse. I mean, that's one of our fundamental things, whether it's our staff, our volunteers... Um, we need to make people feel more just as it were at the doorway it's for people like them so we can take action on that while we're trying to explore these other issues. Okay. Dan.
2: Yeah, thanks.
7: Um, so having raised those issues over uh, diversity which I yeah. hope, hope we'll um, yeah, return to um, I just wanted to speak as an academic in some ways who and just have a think about what it means for heritage studies in this context to attempt to answer that sort of a question. Um, And I think there's a tension there. I think a lot in the universities often actually, uh, uh, we're not awfully uh, good, or we haven't been, at really articulating how it is that we undertake research and think in ways that are really going to mesh in some meaningful way with a practical question you know, like that, which is about the theme of you know, what we keep and what we don't, and is really welcome as, a, as, a, as, a, as an introduction because it's about heritage as an action, heritage as something that we you know, do. Um, and I think part of the context here is how heritage has been uh, debated and the sort of you know, legacy of the 1980s, sort of you know, critical heritage work. Which really hasn't, I think, and really won't ever impact in any meaningful way in answering a question like that. So, uh, uh, you know, heritage is uh, right-wing, we are told, if we go to Neil Asherton or to sort of, you know, Robert Hewison's attack on the heritage industry. But a part of the problem, and I've no doubt that a lot of, a lot of heritage is you know, right-wing, but is it inherently like that, and is it inherently unable to cope with these questions over diversity? Well, no, and I, and I think in some ways one of the issues in that literature was that we came to think that somehow heritage was a trick, this Was that there was a real history out there, mm. Which historians, if we, if we got the history right, if we undertook, if we just got one more document and got it right, there was a sort of confidence that there would be a single sort of true past, and then organisations like the National Trust and others were normally in the frame that they were hoodwinking or were you know mythologising you know the past. I think instead of that, you know, one of the challenges for us is to see heritage as you know something we do. As maybe a response to things that are changing. Often, those responses are things that are being lost. You get that in the loss of an object, as you mentioned, but also the loss, you know, the sort of change of a landscape, or your know, deindustrialisation, or your or, or, yeah, landscape sort of change, or, or indeed in archaeology, which is my background archaeological work which is undertaken as a road is being built or a shopping centre is being sort of excavated and and i think if we see heritages like that as a response to change as alive in that way then it's a sort of in in some ways it is if you like the opposite of history it's history in reverse and so it can accommodate things that change or or are lost
2: thanks dan Um, what are you thinking as you listen to the panel are you are you bored (laughs) <laughs> or are, you, um, are they annoying you? Are, you? are you disagreeing with anything? Have you got any questions for them or any points you'd like to make on this subject? Yeah, somebody here. But what I should say is we've got mics, so please wait for the mic. Um, and please, if you don't mind, identify yourself and say where you're from. And try and keep what you're saying relatively brief. Uh, no? uh, hello, um, my name is Camilla. Uh, w- I'm, I'm part of the
8: visitor experience because the NACI in Surrey. Um, I'm really interested in what you're saying, because actually um, my team work very closely with um, our House of Collections team. Polisnacee is an accredited museum. We're now open for much longer, 363 days a year, and one of the um, pieces of Vista feedback that we come up against um, a lot is that, oh, I've done the house, I don't need to go in again. So we're looking, we're trying more and more to push the envelope in in terms of what sorts of interpretation that we're embracing and we're very good at traditional permanent interpretation and in new storytelling, um, but we are trying to find braver ways of approaching that interpretation. Um, and actually, interestingly, down the road at Hampton Court, we're seeing lots of dramatic interpretation where um, they're literally embodying the characters um, in, in the stories that they're trying to convey to people. So there's, at the moment, I think they're doing a piece about the, the anticipation of the birth of Elizabeth I, but obviously this is fiction, a fictional account based in fact, and I just wondered um, how you feel about that sort of interpretation, that perhaps you could accuse it of being inauthentic, even if it's um, you know, people like myself who are working alongside um, curators and conservators using um, very authentic facts and sources to create something that isn't perhaps what we know is definitely happened.
4: I'm volunteering to start because I'm a trustee of historic royal palaces. Um, so I feel marginally responsible for Hampton Court. Um, <laughs> I, it is hugely engaging and successful to stel- tell stories and um, put on recreations. Uh, English Heritage has had jousting competitions uh, for a while, which I always felt slightly anxious about. But um, I, I think yeah, for all sorts of reasons. Um, I think the key question is whether you're being honest or not. Um, You know, are are you leading people to believe that this is actually what happened on a given day in a given place? Or are you saying this is the sort of thing that might have happened given what we know about those times and those people? Uh, I, I don't think that there's anything wrong at all with people going away, clutching a balloon or a toy or a small... Something figure even, um, if we have to, uh, but I do think that if they believe that they've seen something which is actually true, which you know not to be true, then that's yeah. that's a problem. Oh,
2: Pete and then Sandy.
6: Uh, just briefly, I mean, I, I completely endorse that, I, I, and I, I think it's important to remember that history has many audiences, and... Um, uh, there are many, many different kinds of facts. I mean, I know it's it's uh, it's not it's a bit risky nowadays, especially for a, an expert, not to sort of stand up and say facts are facts. But no, in fact, you know, the, the facts are constructed, and there are many different kinds. And my colleague John Guy was in the papers yesterday or today, I think, saying um, that you know, when he does admissions interviews at Cambridge. Uh, he's a bit worried when undergraduates um, tell him about Thomas Cromwell based on Hilary Mantel's version in Wolf Hall. And that's right. He's right to be worried about that because if you're doing a history course at Sixth form or University, you ought to know um, that the, 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 the Thomas um, Cromwell in Wolf Hall um, was not the real Thomas Cromwell, and he follows the rules of genre and of fiction and, um, and that you, know, you ought to be drawing on other sources... Um, Instead, but, but at the same time, I don't think John Guy for a moment, nor would I, um, would, would would ever want the world to be without Wolf Hall because it's an immense, immensely um, exciting uh, imagine, reimagination of, of Thomas Cromwell, and exactly as Carol said, as long as you make it clear to people, and you do have to make it clear to people. That there's a difference between the two, then I see absolutely no reason not to inspire. What, what are your move slogans? And teach and inspire. Move, move and inspire as well as, as to teach. Um, it, it is not always easy to make those distinctions, and you have to keep reminding yourselves of the, the need to to maintain them so that the undergraduates don't think that will Hall is the real Thomas Cromwell. <laughs>
3: um, to, uh, the portrait gallery. I had a no roughs rule. <laughs> I, was, I was very strict um, but I can remember so vividly to your, to your very good question I can, um, a moment I don't know 20 years ago visiting what used to be called the People's Museum in Manchester based on um, industrial and working histories and they had an excellent I don't know what they still do but they had a fantastic theatre company and I can remember vividly um, just two women um, working from letters I mean they were just working from letters home from, so to speak, working girls who were part of the mills. I mean, it, unbelievably poignant, moving, straightforward. And I don't think anybody listening to it had any other. They, they knew perfectly well it was a performance. It was a performance. Mm. And yet it was based from the period. And actually, even if the letters had been constructed, as long as it was told they were, they were constructed, yeah. then it's fine. Um, if you go to the great uh, collection of uh, drawings in Vienna, as many will have done, you go into the room where you meet um, the Dürer, uh, and you meet, in particular, the Dürer tuft of grass. You'll note that, that, that... Is it called the tuft of grass, the clump of grass, yeah. the tuft of grass, whatever it's called? And you look at it, you marvel, and then you get to the corner of the gallery, and as you're leaving the gallery, there's a little note saying, for the purposes of conservation... The drawings in this gallery are reproductions, and you feel utterly cheated. So it's completely about, to my mind, Peter, puts it, Carol, it's completely valid at one level. But the question is then the clarity and integrity with yes. which people are engaged, and people will understand.
1: Yeah. Can I? Sorry, just two things. One is it kind of I want to get this. I've got to get this off my chest. What I think is completely fascinating about the National Trust, it's, it's, it's wonder as well as the thing that you know drives a lot of um, sense of frustration is because we are such a large institution, a national institution, a very powerful brand, people really care about us. Um, so I think it's fascinating that people, and Carol will probably say that both English Heritage and HRP, yes, they get criticisms for dumbing down, but I think we are extraordinarily sensitive to the charge of dumbing down simply because... The moment we try a theatrical presentation or we're bound to get, you know, an article in the Daily Mail or the Telegraph or somebody writing in saying, oh, the National Trust dumbing down, it's because people care. Uh, and I suspect we need to be braver, subject to all the constraints that everyone has described about that. Um, we will get that criticism when other people won't get that criticism. But this point about authenticity uh, and making clear what is the... what is. Absolute truth and what is our recreation, I think, is just where we have to stand. I heard Hilary Mantel give one of her Ruth lectures the other evening, and she made the point that these are not, it's not academia on the one hand and, and historical fiction on the other, these are complementary skills. She has been creative. Uh, this story, nor the academic, is not in the same sense uh, being creative. And we've got to see them as complementary. And I, I came away from that really thinking, right, National Trust, we should go for this one. So go for it, I say. Okay,
2: okay. Quick, quick responses from Dan and Pete, so again. and then, But I'd like you to get really involved in this yeah. conversation. So let, let me see if you've got a question or you want to join in. Oh, you know, you
7: lots of people. Great. OK, good. So a couple of quick points, and then we'll come the to you next. Right, OK. So I'll be fast. Um... But I did just want to make the point that I think it is uncontentious that uh, what we imagine is heritage is you know to some degree made up, is invented, is interpreted, is sort of yeah, creative. I think what's a harder question, I mean that you know that's a battle that was you know that was won in the past, you know. Actually, I mean what's emerging as a real challenge is you know, what is the narrative that we're going to tell? You know, these are choices. Uh, when we decide to interpret a site in one way, there's a whole whole range of other interpretations which we're missing out. And I think we need to remember in terms of the Trust actually that sort of radical history and that radical origin of the National Trust, which is a really important element of its legacy and what it is. What does that mean in terms of the alternative stories that we might wish to tell? And in this context actually uh, what's happening in museums in anthropology across Europe is actually really interesting because you're seeing the ethnological museum operating as a space not simply to interpret or a didactic space, but as a, as a location for conversations and new sorts of you know, dialogues uh, uh, where you can get alternative voices. And actually you know, diversity in the context of the, of the um, you know, refugee crisis and other events around uh, uh, sort of diversity, you've got those museums emerging as really important sort of public spaces. So I think that's where part of the challenge lies next.
6: I just wanted to add complementarily to that that I think it is important to keep the multiple levels of interpretation available and to keep them in dialogue with each other. I do feel sometimes when I go to a National Trust property that they are reaching out to someone else, obviously not to a Cambridge academic. Um, and But if I push and try to find you know, uh, yeah. previous levels of interpretation which would have been closer to my interest, they're no longer there. And I remember very vividly uh, some years back when I was doing some work for DCMS and I went to Bolsover Castle and I was extremely impressed by the, uh, the audio guide, where you could switch, literally switch between levels. Yeah. There was the children's level, there was the sort of ordinary interested adult level, there was the specialist level, and it got down to a very specialist level. And uh, it's an indication of... How long ago this was that the curator who was responsible for that was Lucy Worsley, when before long before she was prancing across <clears throat> our TV screens. But she did a really yeah. good
2: thing at Bolsover, and it's a model that others yeah. um, could follow up on. I wonder. I wonder how many children went to the super academic, academic <laughs> setting <laughs> just for the fun of it. Who you knows? Um, right. Let's, let's take some questions. We them. had we had one in the middle, a uh, lady with the, in a, yes in a mustard-coloured top
9: i'm just I'm doing a project about theater and heritage i was just um found it fascinating that you started, you started the, the your the, um, um conversation, conversation about, about this about so it, I'm it. interested in running heritage um theater projects that are like encourage creativity or inspired by the past rather than being concerned about historical accuracy um so but but rather than, like celebrating creativity um with my own perceptions, I feel that sometimes there's a gap in the market um, with the he- offers of the heri- in, um, places of heritage. Um, I just think that a concern with historical accuracy shouldn't st- um, st- block creativity as long as people are clear that it is about creativity. Yeah, um, okay. yeah. yeah
2: okay. Good, no, good, point, good point. good point. All right, thank you. Uh, any other, to so the uh, question or points over there, gentlemen towards, yep, the middle. Thank you. Uh, Peter
10: Nixon, National Trust. Observing the panel, I would guess, I may be wrong, but I would guess that some but only some of you were at school at a time when you were taught something called natural history. Um, my point being that your question at the outset, John, with regard to the axe is a pretty well-ploughed furrow in the conservation of the natural world Uh, and certainly when I started in that conservation field over 40 years ago the fundamental premise was what's called the Sanford principle, the precautionary principle that if there is any question of access being in conflict with conservation then conservation must prevail otherwise you're losing the very thing that you're seeking to preserve. I would say certainly in the natural environment world, but I think increasingly in the historic environment, we've moved away from conservation versus access as a mindset towards conservation for access. Uh, And my answer to your question would be, Absolutely, we should provide as much access access as possible. And the challenge is to, I guess some of the people in this room are experts in that area in terms of the technical expertise, which has enabled us to have much more access to the countryside, much more access to our gardens, much more access to our special places of whatever nature through the right techniques, the right technical knowledge, um, and recognizing that conservation is ultimately a discipline about the conservation of the careful management of change. Um, so I think there's this fairly easy answer to your question, which is, yes, there should be access to these places, there should be more of it, and we need to develop the technical expertise to be able to say, wherever possible, yes, not no. Great. Thank you, Peter.
2: Let's take one more question. The, the, the yep. lady with the mic, yes.
11: Hi. Um, I find that it's really interesting that we're talking about kind of authenticity but also wanting to have that kind of immersive visitor experience and how you can kind of blend the two. Um, and I just had a personal experience where I went to a museum in New Zealand and there was an exhibition that was about the Great Wall that was put on by Peter Jackson, the director of Lord of the Rings. Um, and I found that quite confusing, I'd say, that someone who, from, from my point of view, has very little experience or knowledge putting on putting on this narrative, and I thought that, um, it's it's quite hard to provide a backstory in that way, and it seemed to be more kind of com- not commercial driven, but more entertainment driven. So I was wondering whether do you think involving these kind of figures who aren't from a necessary necessarily museum academic background is a help or a hindrance?
2: Good question. Any responses?
0: <laughs> go, go <on. laughs> <Go on. laughs>
3: Um, well, I invited Bob Dylan to show his portraits at the National Portrait Gallery, uh, and I got initially a lot of trouble um, from those who said, oh, come on, Bob as an artist, forget it, come on. He's a great, great uh, lyricist, great musician, but he, but he ain't good as an artist. Um, and I didn't actually know, when I invited him, to be honest, I wasn't actually clear which portraits we get. And there was a moment when we... The portraits are right. They were, they were uh, done in kind of quite heavy uh, pastel, uh, large works on paper. And actually what came out were these very, very vivid uh, faces, individuals. Um, there was about 20 of them. And we laid them out on the boardroom table in the National Portrait Gallery. And, and uh, very, very strong, these characters. Um, and there was nothing with them. Who they were or where they come from, and when I sent a note to Bob Dylan's manager and said, "Jeff, you know, we'd really it'd be really helpful if Bob could tell us, first of all, whether these are real people or not," and he said, uh, a couple of days later, I got a message back saying, "Yeah, Bob says they're all people." <laughs> uh, anyway, the third one, he's he's the manager of the Sydney Harbour Boat Club. That was the end of it. But it was. What I'm getting to is that what you actually got in that particular piece of art was about an intensity of engagement. Okay, it brought a lot of people into the gallery who are Bob Dylan fans. They then found something else about the intensity of engagement that came from his particular work. I still don't think, like others, that Bob Dylan's a great artist. But I, but I do think he spent his lifetime thinking about people. So I think that the question of the Jackson... I mean, I didn't see the exhibition... But I think the question of who else interprets is a really good question. And in my view, we should be very open, but we should think about why. We just have to get into the why are we going to make those invitations. Because only very few invitations could be made. And I think, as the Trust and other places actually invites local people, people in the community, all kinds of different people, but it's still going to be selective. But there's a very good reason to invite others in. Yeah.
1: Can I... Oh, sorry, Carol.
4: I was just going to pick up on, um, not on Bob Dylan, because I agree that was an interesting exhibition. But um, I, I just thought the first and third questions were really interesting as a combination, because um, the whole question of the creative response to heritage is uh, is fascinating. And, it, and in a sense, I think it does come back to uh, to understanding what you're doing and what you're seeing again. Uh, and one of the most moving events um, that I observed and and in a sense was part of as being part of the crowd that was commemorating the First World War was the Jeremy Deller piece, Mm. We're Here Because We're Here. And that was an entirely theatrical piece created in a very theatrical circumstance, um, which I felt had more ability to give uh, a broad sweep of people Mm. an an inkling as to what it must have felt like. Um, It was a... Thank you. Yes, I should explain what it was. Um, This was a piece that took place all across the country in different locations where small groups of people in great secrecy had been uh, trained to spend a period of hours in uniform... Uh, appearing primarily in public places, uh, Waterloo Station, for example, appearing in uniform, totally silently, not responding to questions from uh, the public who were saying, what's going on, what's all this about? The only interaction they'd have was they would give you a card, and on the card were the details of someone who was killed in the First World War. And it was a complete... I'm incredibly emotional just thinking about about it. It It was an immensely evocative Mm -hmm. piece. Uh, and it was done without an initial fanfare, so no one was expecting it, which meant that you had mm. to engage with it as you experienced it and as you saw it. Um, now, Jeremy Denner, I think, is an astonishing artist on very many levels, but, the, but the, the, the engagement from that piece was astonishing. But it had an interesting combination because there was a reality about it. The individual people who were taking part in it were not impersonating... The individuals who'd been killed, they weren't chosen to look like them or to come from the same place or anything, but they were offering you a connection with somebody, and so I don't have a problem with Peter Jackson in, in engaging in that space provided you're really clear that it's Peter Jackson's imagining and impact and response to that event I,
1: mm, mm. I, I was just only going to say that I, I do think there is a very strong role It's not quite the same as Peter Jackson for creative arts in making people think differently about heritage. So we've had a a big programme we still have with support from the Arts Council called Trust New Art, um, which is getting contemporary artists to interpret places and put in installation inside houses and outside in in landscapes to make people think differently. Uh, it, It wasn't a new commission, but a fabulous exhibition at Drogo last summer where somehow through a friend of a friend, we'd got hold of one of Grayson Perry's um, tapestries, the one that's all about heaven and hell. Is it Dante's Inferno? Uh, And we put it up against uh, a very traditional, um, uh, the Chariot of Triumph, uh, an 18th century French tapestry. And it was just mind-boggling in terms of making, A, drawing people in, but also making them think about techniques of tapestry and what tapestry uh, might or might not have so um, I do think there is a real role for creative arts um, and performing arts in getting people to think differently about heritage
7: Yeah if I could just add um, sort of onto that you know, really important sort of conversation the, the, an, uh, an observation about the role of the scientist or the conservator or things that we think of as empirical or objective which we often leave out of these conversations but actually, you know, those contexts or those activities in their context often, often actually are also interpretive in their own way. So, uh, actually, um, the, the, you know, one example in the literature, of course, is the, the uh, sort of underwater archaeology undertaken around the raising of the Mary Rose happening in the same instance as the Falklands War. So you have, mm-hmm. and naturally, um, as we move towards uh, uh, yeah May f- uh, Mayflower 400, uh, one thinks about heritage activity around yeah that event, which will be objective, which will be you know factual, but will also have a context of, if you like, our international relationships and can never quite shake off that sense that heritage is always about where we are with what we think the nation-state is, you know, one way or another. And I think how we handle, as we move up to that anniversary as a sector, we need to think really hard about you know, not only artistic interventions, but also how we're using our own objective um, you, know, you know, methodologies, because, because, because they're also interpretations in their own, in their own way.
2: Um, can we talk, a, oh, we'll come to another question in a second, let's, let's, um, let's talk a little bit more about, about the histories that we're presenting, the heritage that, that, that we're presenting, so I, I sat down with my wife last night to, to try and watch um, a bit of easy nostalgia, a historical film, and I failed dismally, I tried two films and they were both dreadful, so I gave up. Um, And we watched the leaders' debate instead, which wasn't very romantic. But there you are. Um, That was my evening. But shouldn't, isn't, isn't, isn't the job of the National Trust or other heritage organisations really to, to present people what they want? We talked a bit about this. So to present an easy, comfortable history. Um, that, that people enjoy because actually really we're in the game of entertainment more than we are in the game of education aren't we surely um, so, um,
1: Can I, so I, have you signed your contract <laughs> <laughs> have I signed your contract <laughs> so the,
2: yeah the wonderful thing is Helen isn't my boss this week <laughs> <laughs> um, so what do you think, panel? Um, is there a place for that easy nostalgia, easy history, easy heritage, or, or do we need to be more challenging? <laughs> um, well, we're going to be challenging. It's very, very
3: clear. Um, but it's very difficult to do. I mean, I, the, the National Trust uh, off, uses a lot the very perfectly good phrase of spirit of place. But I, I often find myself thinking, spirit of place, it's fine, but, it, but, it's, but is it essence of place, or is it magic of place, is it mystery of place? Um, and of course I know what I want a lot, which is facts. I want facts of place. Um, and I suppose that's probably because I'm a boring person who's studied economic history here at this university. But in studying economic history, I know that part of what can be hugely engaging and entertainment is really understanding what the connectivity was between different kinds of facts, the maker place. So, to my mind, the bit of the challenge that I'm most interested in is, of course, keeping something entertaining and, if you like, delightful, but at the same time, offering really good facts, very well edited and selected, and, as we've said earlier, at different levels.
2: Helen, mm. did you want to disagree?
1: Uh, Of course I did. No, I mean, there is always (laughs) an element of um, uh, wanting people... I think people can be inspired and comforted at the same time, and sometimes that is the experience that they get. Um, I think our challenge is a slightly different one, and and perhaps I am being a a little bit too missionary about this because I am, by original training, a historian. But one of the things I believe in very profoundly in terms of... um, the experiences that people get and what we say about history. uh, It is something about, and this comes back to your former boss, Neil McGregor, what is the purpose of a museum? It's to make them think differently about the world people live in now. And I heard him say that, and it completely chimed with something I believe profoundly, which is one of the things we need to do is to convey to people that the people they hear about when they visit our places or go to a museum, it's not just that they dressed differently, uh, or they lived in different kinds of houses, or their transport was different. They thought profoundly differently about the world. Uh, Hilary Mantel, again, on whatever night it was this week I heard her speak, said "You know, getting into the mind of all of those 16th century characters, you had to understand that what they cared about was salvation, the salvation of their soul, and that was what drove them. Um, And what I, I do think we have a responsibility to do is to get people, first of all, to think, ah, oh, I can't sit there saying what an appalling thing that anybody would ever have believed X, Y or Z or that such and such an activity was uh, acceptable ethically or uh, Y view of the place of the Earth in the solar system was... Uh, they weren't mad. They weren't bonkers. It was just what people thought then. Then I want people to think, ah, oh, I wonder if there are things we think now... Have we reached a state of perfection? Or will people in a 100 years' time or 200 years' time think they were completely mad to think X, Y, or Z? So there's something about, while still giving people a, an enjoyable experience, getting them to think about the world they live in now, um, which, as I say, perhaps I've got a bit of missionary zeal about that one, but I do think it's an important role for the heritage sector. Well,
6: thank you. Peter? Yes, I agree with that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad that we're not I think, going to spend too much time worrying about nostalgia and comfort and luxuriating in the, in the certainties and refuge of the past. That was something that, that, that is a concern about heritage that occasionally pops up, but it hasn't really been a theme of late, and I'm, I'm glad to think that it, it's not going to be a theme tonight. Um, because I do agree very much with Helena, and I, I think that um, when people go on a heritage adventure, they're, what they're often looking for is to be surprised. Uh, I mean, people explore the past now um, in, uh, because it's one of the sort of few, you know, unknown countries um, in a globe which is pretty well known um, and a wider universe which we don't seem to have much um, more access to. And I do think that, the, that voyages into the past are voyages of discovery um, and people want to find something unsettling, surprising that they didn't expect um, one of the one of the things that uh, I liked very much about that rash of historical reality TV shows that um, swept through the culture a decade or so ago, it seemed to they seem to have tailed off for the moment. Maybe they'll come back. You know, the 1900, the 1900 house, house yes. the Edwardian country house, uh, the 1940 house. I was actually the historical consultant on a few of these, and they came un- under a lot of criticism for the same you know dumbing down, popularization reasons that we've heard um, on other fronts uh, this evening. But one of the things I loved about those is that they took unashamedly, unabashedly, present-day people, they threw them into this situation, um, which they found disturbing, unpleasant, baffling, and they only gave them enough briefing so, so to, that, you know, that they don't break their, their role too frequently. But, of course, a lot of the appeal of those programs was precisely for the, for the yes. viewer, was to watch that encounter between someone like us thrown into this in, in, in alien environment, almost like a science fiction um, environment, like a video game, but in the past, and, and trying to work it out, trying to decode it, unlock the secrets. And I do think that that was a, a major reason for the success of those programs. And I don't think you, therefore, have to
2: feel like you're missionizing. I think people are ready and open yeah. for those kinds of experiences. Okay. Carol's going to come in with a point. It, um, do be thinking about what your questions are. You might want to take the discussion in another direction, that's fine. So, Carol, and then over to you.
4: I was just picking up on uh, what my people think in the future, is odd about us, and I'm, I was going to give an example of something which we might we now think is very odd indeed from Rest. the very recent past. So, uh, <laughs> yes, uh, let's not go there. But, um, so, at the Heritage Lottery Fund, we spent an awful lot of time helping communities try and rescue remnant remnants of the medieval heart of their town and reconnect it with other parts of their town across a ring road which at the time at which those ring roads were built right across the UK they were seen to be incredibly important uh, forward-looking forward-moving elements of the urban space because it was all about getting from one place to another as quickly as possible and I think The great majority of people who are interested in the urban landscape would now say that they were probably the single most destructive intervention post-war. But they were everywhere, and they were seen as a really good thing. So it it would be astonishing if in 30 or 40 years' time we didn't have something similar. I might suggest, uh, as a slide I used in a talk a few days ago, I might suggest that some of the skyscrapers that you can see now when you stand on the walls of the Tower of London um, will come to be regarded as an astonishing mistake and, and misapplication of skills that we have, but I, I think, in a sense, as, as humans, we're uh, we're destined to always create something which seems like an incredibly good idea at the time, and 30 or 40 years later seems to be astonishingly stupid. Uh, but maybe heritage is about coming to terms with some of those things.
5: Mm-hmm.
7: Gonna,
4: yes, Man's I just gonna wanted to,
7: and, then. and so on that point, I just wanted to speak up for the ring road for a moment <laughs> <laughs> and just point out, <laughs> so just point out that certainly not, I mean, it's an interesting case because obviously, you know, one of the challenges in archaeology, in heritage, in, you know, managing the historic environment is how not simply to have a canon of what we think of as the past, which has nothing to do with every every day, you know, people's mm-hmm. lives, and certainly not. I wouldn't want to speak up for everything, Rose, but let's let's look at, for example, might have the, to the, this that, later, the example to of the <laughs> you know, Durham uh, Union. You know, Durham uh, University are having a having a conversation at the moment about a you know, brutalist building which isn't listed, which is f- is actually it's a building. Which is enormously important for a whole whole load of people that have had experiences there and have, uh, have attended the university over the years. It isn't as simple as, as everyone knows here. You know, it isn't as simple as just saying architecturally this is important. It's also about value and how you know that value can 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 sort of you know, find itself into the very modern and into the contemporary. I mean, I've just you know, redisplayed our world archaeology at the Pitt Rivers, and we have um, alongside. The sort of hand an, axes that, uh, that John, you know, mentioned earlier. We have uh, yeah, modern objects. We we have uh, uh, we have an excavated um, uh, sort of sort of uh, what do you call it? Uh, like a, the the uh, uh, the data stick, like a data stick, oh, a USB stick yeah, yeah. excavated very from good, yeah. from London, very for example.
2: Okay. Thanks, Dan. Right. Um, I tell you what. Let's so let's yeah, start. Uh, uh, so, we've got a gentleman down here who's going to come, and then, but can, can we take three points? So, if we could take you and, and the lady behind, and then this lady in the middle next, and then we'll come up with you a little bit later if that's okay.
5: I, I don't think that we need uh feel cheated by a little bit of judicious fakery. Uh, I, I dug uh, the Palace of Minos at Knossos, where Sir Arthur Evans built, as you know, a a, a big chunk which enables visitors to uh, see the difference between these walls with archaeologists pottering around and envisage this wonderful feminine civilization with the frescoes and so on. Now, I'm a great believer in comparative method. Uh, There's an, uh, an archive just started up in the Institute of Archaeology uh, it's called the Air Her- project, H-E-I-R. It's an acronym. I, I have no idea what it stands for, but I think heritage <laughs> must come into it. I've put 10,000 slides in. It's to do with digitizing slides, some of them glass slides. And there are wonderful comparative results uh, there because uh, the simple one would be the Parthenon. If people knew what it looked like a little while ago and what it looks like now, uh, this is a very obvious fact. So there are issues here of display, conservation, and presentation. If you can present whatever your site, a country house or something, just two photographs, because as you know, you don't want to overload people with displays, showing before and after. Uh, These are all facts, and any good uh, restorer makes a difference between the old and the new. Uh, so that's, these are quite simple points, I think.
2: Thank you. I, I like that, a little judicious bakery. Very good. Yes. <laughs>
8: Um, hello. My point slightly touches on the New Zealand one, but I wanted to have um, raise the point about what the role of voice is in heritage in the 21st century. Um, we talked about creatives responding to what we have and how we're telling those stories, but actually, is there a role in today's society for actually the voice not to be from the establishment? Um, today's society is kind of looking for it to be quite broad and for people to have different sources and different kind of viewpoints, so does it always have to be the historian or the curator?
2: That, that's pause for that question because it's a good one and I'll turn that over to the panel. Peter. Uh, I mean just, just to commend uh, a national
6: trust um, initiative, uh, my colleague Margot Finn um, who had a project on um, an academic project on the material culture of the East India Company um, did a wonderful collaboration with the trust at Austerley Park very near the, the, the large uh, South Asian population mm. of Southall where there was a genuine attempt to uh, bring together not only the, his- the expert uh, voices of the historians who were going to tell the stories of these objects, the curators of the National Trust who were possibly a little bit um, unsure um, at first about how central these objects really could or should be to Osterley Park, although there was a East India Company connection, but also to bring in the local community and um, to, um, to uh, well, present them with objects that they recognized, Um, but in quite different contexts, and get them to talk about them. But also, of course, to get them to to see uh, objects which they didn't recognize, but which were, in fact, their own Asian heritage, uh, from which they'd been cut off um, by immigration. immigration. And um, I thought that was an excellent initiative. And um, the point Helen mentioned earlier about attempting to introduce histories of slavery into, um, uh, into the presentation of heritage, very, very important, to, to historians, not always actually important to the local communities. Um, though, again, um, as with some of those East India Company objects, um, even though they weren't important to the local communities, they um, they did serve an educational function in reminding people of pasts that they really ought to um, have, uh, own up to, even if it makes them uncomfortable. So there's, a, there's a, some very good, not just dialogues, but, you know... Um, Circular discussions through many communities going on in these heritage sites. And again, this would have been unthinkable a generation ago in the, in the, in the National Trust. My wife is a classical musician, and she tried to get National Trust properties to let her quartet do cl- 18th century music concerts in 18th century environments. Hmm. It was impossible. <laughs> and now, you know, the South All Asian community is having Ostley Park open to them. It's an extraordinary turnaround. Can I? Oh, I'll, I'll
1: give an example. Sorry. Others aren't immediately chipping in. A fabulous example of this, sorry, this is not, let's sing the National Trust praises, but a really good example of this at Croom in Worcestershire, which is a pretty well empty, uh, wonderful 18th century house in a Capability Brown landscape. In a sense, I'd say this slightly nervously with the audience we're lucky that there isn't much of a collection. So we've got lots of empty space. Uh, to do with what we want and the spirit of the place is it was the young Robert Adam it was the young Lancelot Brown who created it so let's get young young artists and young people in and I was privileged to attend a poetry slam I'd never been to a poetry slam before Uh, the year we were celebrating Capability Brown that was the year before last wasn't it it? no last year uh, 2016 and we'd invited a group of young poets from the central Birmingham very very diverse in all sorts of ways we'd shown them Uh, the park. We talked about Brown and Adam and said, okay, um, uh, can you create some poetry about whether or not he was a vandal or a visionary? And the poetry slam was these young people creating poetry um, in their own various styles about whether he was a visionary or a, a vandal. And then we all voted on it at the end. It was the most wonderful, different kind of voice. I'm happy to say... The visionary one, so you know there 's hope, young people and capability Brown I was
2: quick, a couple of quick points, and then back to the audience
3: um, Well, just on the point about who else curates um, it, Of course, others should curate as I think we 've been saying, um, but I think the the main thing is not to have the expectations. Of what will be curated um, when we did an exhibition in the National Portrait Gallery some years ago uh, called Gay Icons, we invited ten uh, all of them public figures who were out and who we just simply said, why don't you pick figures that are iconic for you as, in whatever form uh, in your life and um, this included Elton John, it included Ellen Hollingshurst, it included lots of really interesting different People who were gay. Uh, and they each chose five portraits of persons who they really cared about. Um, anyway, once they'd all ten made their selection, the exhibition got dubbed internally at the National Portrait Gallery, What No Kylie? Because none of them selected Kylie Minogue. Um, and all that tells us is that if we'd had our stereotypes about what yeah. we thought would be the gay icons yeah. from persons who were gay who were making the selection. Anyway, I mean, the exhibition was
7: a great success even without Kylie. Yeah. Yes, and so I just yeah. Um, oh, I can one. have. i got one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, story, um, absolutely. So I just wanted to make the point that in some ways, uh, diversity and how we how we engage with those issues isn't only about allowing sort of multiple voices in in a sort of random way. In a lot of cases, there are all sorts of appropriate locations for having certain sorts of conversation. So in the context of the National Trust, where there are estate landscapes and estates which were built with. Uh, your money from the West Indies, where an estate was being managed in the West Indies, and also in the UK. It's appropriate in yeah. that context, yeah. actually, to have a certain set of conversations, yeah. as, we've, as we've heard. And that raises the issue of how the monument itself, or the site, or the house, how we think about that as offering up certain stories in the same way as interpreters might. and in the, in the context of, you know, Europe, Uh, There's been some really interesting work around this in terms of the Holocaust, that sort of German idea of the Mahnmal, which isn't a Denkmal, which is a memorial. A Mahnmal is a a form of dark heritage. It's a monument to shame or to remind us of something which happened, which really shouldn't have done. And I think all sorts of interesting arguments around this are emerging at the moment in the American South, uh, among the monuments around the civil war um, and here in oxford we've've we 've we've had all sorts of really interesting conversations which certainly aren 't over yet over roads must fall and over how we think in open minded ways about the heritage of empire in a context here and and there for me, the real issue is in fact the relationship between those histories and if you like knowledge um, as well as only about these these you know, these these issues of interpretation
2: Thanks,
4: I think the voices question is often about who you ask to curate yeah. as well as what is being curated so um, if, if you have a collection with an East Asian content for example uh, when was the last time you asked anyone from the East Asian community to curate mm. that from the point of view of their own community rather than uh, necessarily from an academic point of view and what different selection of artefacts or stories or presentations do you get if you do it that way and what difference do you get if you, if you bring uh, someone from outside the UK into the UK and ask them to curate as opposed to someone who is third or fourth or fifth generation living in the UK the, the the question of who you give the opportunity of curation to I think is often uh, one of the absolutely keys to starting to get different narratives coming through.
2: Thank you. Um, there's a, a woman there with a mic, and then it's uh, this woman at the front.
12: Um, so I'm a student here at Oxford University, and something we, come, something we come to terms with is that objects are biographied objects. They have histories. There's a series of ways that they've been represented. So my question is, is there a place for that, that history of representation um, because one of one of the ways objects of course, in how we conceptualize them is how they 're described and in how we 're describing heritage, is there a place for um, a self reflexive sort of progression of of how how we 've conceptualized places or monuments or stately homes, um, not just going with the newest or most progressive way of representing but Discussing how people have have represented it through time, and that representation really is contextual in the present.
2: Great. We'll we'll come to that. Let's just take. um, Can we just get the microphone to the front here as well to take this question as well? I know you've been waiting patiently.
1: My name is Alison, I work for the National Trust. Um, I'm thinking about the future. So presumably some of what is happening now will be called heritage in the future. And should we in the sector be deciding what's important? In other words, who should be inventing new heritage? Will it be the children of our current 5 million members who perpetuate maybe our definition of a heritage or should it be somebody else?
2: Great, thank you very much. So who decides what's the heritage of the future and then that history of representation? Any thoughts?
4: I'll just do a small vignette of the history of representation to start with. Um, uh, Diorama. Um, When uh, we were funding a project uh, at Woolerton Hall uh, at the Heritage Lottery Fund, one of the things that we discovered was that they had an extraordinary collection of dioramas. Effectively, small boxes with stuffed birds in um, against backgrounds of dried grass or whatever it may be Uh, and there was a big discussion about whether they should all be thrown out or whether some at least of them should be kept as representative Uh, and actually one when as part of the uh, exploration of the project they went into the history of these things they found that some of them not very many but one or two of them had actually type species in these Diorama, which no one had known um, they'd gone completely out of fashion you know, the first instinct was oh for goodness sake you know, let's get rid of them we really don't want these sorts of things anymore but actually that uh, that particular presentation of natural history and their space in that presentation was, was really important mm. in terms of understanding how people had seen natural history specimens in the past and how they presented for the future so I just think it's a fantastic story apart from anything else
3: um, I think you know, the future heritage we certainly can't determine but I'm often struck by there was a, um, the historian Patrick Wright um, in one of his books about 30 years ago had a lovely phrase quite well known of, of referring to deep England um, and I think he saw deep England as the bits with on maps where there's a sort of green line along the road uh, indicating that you were entering deep England so I often think about if you like not so much shallow England <laughs> um, but if you like ordinary England, I mean the, the sort of bits of you know John Piper and others worrying about petrol stations in the nineteen thirties, or any of us thinking about what one would hope for is a future heritage that will be more diverse, will be more mixed, will be more ordinary. But I think what we do know is probably there's enough randomness to historical process um, to mean that we shouldn't worry too much. That, that you know, plenty will decay, plenty will survive. We can keep things if we're thoughtful as we should be, but we shouldn't worry too much
7: about it. Yeah, and so if I could just you know, build on that and also attempt to link the two you know, questions, the, the idea of sort of you know, biographical change and ideas over you know, what kind of heritage we want sort of next. And just to observe that you know, we have in the UK a series already, a series of layered histories of heritage itself. Heritage as an idea leaves a trace So we've got owning heritage maybe at the start in terms of historic houses and the birth of the National Trust, which is a sort of a museum model. We've got landmarking and listing of sites and buildings. We've got the designation process uh, and their ideas over heritage as sort of landscape. In the 60s, we've got the zoning of heritage at the same time as the planning regimes are attempting to manage it in those ways. In the 80s, you've got world heritage, that idea that heritage is is everywhere internationally, but then also that HLF sort of model of, of your value. Heritage really is everywhere. Heritage is where people say it's going to be. And each of those, it isn't that we want sort of the next layer only. We have, I think, I think the challenge is to celebrate... All these things actually last. So the nothing Trust is really important, you know, today, even though it's at the, the it the, uh, was the first model. You know, we have all these different ways of sort of managing and thinking about the heritage. So I, I wonder whether we're part of the next, you know, challenge is to see how all those different forms of thinking about the past, you know, materially, how we sort of celebrate them and and sort of, and sort of how they allow things, you know, to persist and how they, how they leave layers there... Of their own. There's an archaeology to, you know, the National Trust waiting to
5: be
7: waiting to be done.
2: Peter,
6: I mean, just to add a slightly gloomier note um, uh, to the end of that um, long list of things to be celebrated, I am a little concerned about the future of heritage um, from one particular uh, respect. I mean, I'm confident that the National Trust will sail on from triumph to triumph as the growth of its membership tests, and that's that's definitely a, a good thing for the future. But I am, I, I was very Worried, and I was worried that more people weren't worried um, about the privatization of English heritage um, by the government of years ago, which w- which just went um, um, by the board without very much um, public attention. I mean, 30, 40 years ago, there were these immense heritage debates and struggles over um, preservation of the heritage, and you know, exemptions from capital transfer tax um, were were won. The National Heritage Memorial Fund was set up. Um, The Heritage Lottery Fund came out of that. Um, A wide coalition of intellectuals and on left and right, and uh, politicians on left and right, sort of formed a united front to defend the um, public custody of the heritage. And a few years ago, um, when um, as part of its campaign to privatize all the few remaining public bodies, they tried to to privatize the Forestry Commission. That didn't succeed. Um, they've tried to. they recently tried to privatize the um, British um, School of Rome, British School of Athens, and the other British schools in the Middle East. That's been staved off. But the one great success of the cultural privatization program of the coalition government was the privatization of English heritage, which meant it's been floated off with a grossly inadequate um, endowment. It's a private charity. Mm. And um, it, it's... I mean, this is a complicated political and technical question and I wouldn't want to pronounce on it, but it's not clear to me that in cases where the National Trust can't step in for, for financial reasons, um, it's not clear to me that when there are future heritages to be saved, there is going to be a public body to save them.
1: Mm-hmm. Can I just pick up Alison's question briefly, and I'm going to try and not sound like an economist. I think there is an issue here about the market speaking and and us not being too... As my children would say, up ourselves to listen to what it is they have to say. So, I have been. I'm a naturally, you know, being a historian once long ago. You know, I don't. Why everybody's so terrifically interested in family history? You know, incredibly interested in the history of their families. And I think the national, the whatever it's called now, Q, the National Record Office, that is their predominant visitor. And we know at the trust, and actually picking up Carol's earlier point, how as it say, how many people were really moved by the celebration, are moved by the celebration of the centenary of the First World War and connect their family to it? Um, the excitement we get from our groups of volunteers when they find anything that's anything to do with the Second World War is extraordinary. Um, and uh, I sit there saying, I think we ought to get the Imperial War Museum to tell us whether this is really significant. But actually... I know that people will rush forth and uh, dig out another tunnel underneath the White Cliffs of Dover or whatever it is at the drop of a hat. So there is something about what do people appear to care about. They don't care when people knock down a petrol station. Uh, the undergraduates of Oxford University appear to care about f- sub as you're sitting there in your traditional subfusc outfit uh, because you're a proctor. And these undergraduates of Oxford University, I believe, said, we like to keep this. This is a... Tangible, or is it intangible, heritage we want to keep? So mm. how you... It's quite tangible. It's it, very tangible, <laughs> and probably quite hot as well. Especially um, at exam time. Particularly, yeah, personal experience at exam time. So this thing about how, you, how we should be better at observing what society does and appears to value, and then acting on that rather than, than being a bit, you know, separate from that debate, I think is very important.
2: Thank you. Um, we are about out of time, which is good news, because wine beckons, um, I'm going to give the panel one last sentence each. Um, thinking we, we are one week away from a general election now. Um, thinking about the future of heritage, what would you like to say to our future government? No pressure. <laughs> if you haven't got a sentence, it's fine. But if you have, what do you want to say to the government?
7: Okay. So I would say that heritage, from the outset, has been it emerged. It, emerged hand in hand with the nation state and we're never going to shake that off so heritage is one space in which we can think about what sort of nation we want to be how european we want to be who how we think of ourselves and i think that issue our relationship with world heritage how well we are able to protect our own uh, world heritage sites in this country including stonehenge and um, those issues are absolutely at the heart of, sort of how heritage is able to serve our country and is able to, you know, to be a resource which is really meaningful to a sort of, sort of, you know, diverse range of audiences Thanks. as possible.
2: Thanks, Dan. Um, I'm
4: going to have a go at more or less just a sentence. Um, people care about it much, much more than you might mm. think uh, and you mess with it at your peril. <laughs>
6: well I wish that were true as I say I, I, was, I was concerned about the, um, the failure of any broad swath of the public opinion to stand up for English heritage so my sentence would be 30 years from now um, the, our posterity will marvel at the ring road and at the skyscrapers but they will also marvel at our apparent serene confidence that public functions can be handed over to private philanthropy without um, any change in priorities or um, efficacy for the future
1: uh, I'd say history matters because it made us as a nation, as a society, what we are, and you'll make better decisions for the future if you understand it.
3: And I think I'd refer to that lovely quote of David Hockney, where David was caught at a sad moment and he said, all art, all art is contemporary because it's now. And if we don't see that sense of it as being now and for the future, then we haven't really got the cycle of where we're going.
1: What's your sentence, John? Um, gosh,
2: you put me on the spot, and I haven't got one now, that's so unfair. Um, <laughs> I, I think I... <laughs> I, I was just going to pull everything together so beautifully there. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, abs- I'm absolutely passionate about the power of heritage. I, I've seen heritage change people's lives, and, and I think I agree with yeah. Carol, actually, that... Um, y- y- you only begin to know how much people value it when you lose it. So I think the the, the role of the National Trust and the relationship with Oxford um, is part of this in caring for that heritage forever for everyone is absolutely incredible and absolutely vital, despite my cynicism at the beginning of what I was saying. <laughs> um, so um, what was good is that I just, um, I sensed on the panel there that as Peter was Was speaking, Carol was disagreeing but didn't have time to come back. And that's good because it means we can continue the conversation (laughs) over a glass of wine. And it is all about debate and disagreement. And apologies, I know some of you had questions you didn't have time to answer. Um, I just want to say one or two quick thank yous. So I think um, thank you to the University of Oxford for hosting us so generously and wonderfully. Um, Thank you actually to Alice and Oliver who are over there in terms of holding this relationship together. Thank thank you to our panel who've managed to disagree with each other a little bit, which is very healthy, and thank you to you as an audience for coming and asking such good questions. Let's go and have a glass of wine. Thank
1: Thank you.